0: Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you again, starting for this year, our series of satsangs. Um, We still are interrupted with one of the themes of satsangs in uh, having not finished the Gospel of Luke, the teachings of Jesus as they were outlined in the Gospel of Luke. So, theoretically, at some point or another, I will want to continue with that, because I don't like to finish, to leave a subject unfinished like that. But uh, today, when I announced that I was going to restart for this season with uh, satsangs, one of our teachers transmitted a request which came from questions coming from pupils in uh, some of our levels and courses, And it was more like talking about the spiritual realization and concretely in yoga how it is related with the different states of samadhi. What is the description of the different states of samadhi or at least what is being known and said. A little bit of putting a system because we generally say samadhi, maybe some of the people who are listening to this lecture online They don't even know what that is, roughly speaking. For the yogis, that's a very big word and it has a technical uh, deep meaning. And of course, um, we could start with one of the experiences of Ramakrishna himself. That Ramakrishna... As he was experiencing states of Samadhi because he practiced some yoga and certain spiritual practices that took him there, then he found himself in a different state of spiritual accomplishment, of spiritual grace. And the commentator, Romain Roland, actually writing about the life of Ramakrishna, he uses a very interesting sentence Because, he says, thus Ramakrishna confirmed and realized that Samadhi was, is, indeed, a way to spiritual realization. Because, in a certain way, you could say, well, uh, Christian mystics said that you fall on your knees... And you pray to Jesus and you pray to Virgin Mary and you pray and pray and pray and pray and your prayer becomes deeper, stronger. And of course, if you are not eating uh, bad food, uh, too animalistic food, and if you are not wasting your sexual energy and if you are living a life which is moral and ethical, like not killing people in between your prayers or some other bizarre things, which sounds absurd, but some people did exactly that. They were praying in the morning and in the evening they were fighting and killing some people. And then in the next morning they were praying again. So if you do that, you will experience a state of grace of God, and therefore the prayer is a path, is a path to the mercy of God, to the grace of God. But then the yogis say, if you focus in Ajna Chakra, and suddenly your mind is stopping, like Patanjali says, it slows down, or then in Samyama or in some, it goes into a state of void, as Buddha says, or others. Then suddenly you are like gone, and completely merged into a spiritual experience, which is a sort of a void or a sort of a perfect mind, or whatever you want to call it? And is that also a way to the grace of God? Like I understand that if you fall on your knees and pray for 24 years, then you have tears flowing, suddenly you are happy and blessed and you feel you are in the bosom of God and you feel you are saved and you are in the kingdom of God and all the grace and all the love in the universe is with you. But if you sit in Nirvikalpa Samadhi or whatever that is, is that also taking you to a place of grace? It's not obvious. Of course, we tell you, Patanjali said, in the, when we study the levels of yoga, we tell you in the third day of our first level courses, no, we tell you that there are eight stages of yoga. And after meditation, which is very high already, there comes samadhi, which is the top of the pyramid, which is the accomplishment, which is the big thing, and all that. And that is where you want to get. But many people will doubt. Like, there are many Christian mystics who would say, come on, man, yoga is just some satanic fucked up thing. Where some... I know people who say that, very, very serious people in Christianity, in different branches of Christianity, we know very serious people who say yoga is a devil's creation, is the devil's <laughs> creation. Also in Islam. The big uh, muftis and so on, they proclaim yoga is from the devil. It's not a path to God. So Islamic people, like in Turkey or other places, they are being told, don't practice. Yoga is just a delusion of the devil. It will not take you to God. Yoga is some sort of product of the devil. And others would say the same. You know? And they would say, yeah, yeah, okay, I understand, you can stand on your head, you can rivet your eyes on a black dot, you can do this, you can stop your breath, you can slow down your breath, you can slow down your mind. And does this mean that you have reached God or some graced level? How do you demonstrate that that is God? Because we demonstrate that it's just a fucked up state of mind. It's a sort of a self-hypnosis. It's a sort of a state in which you like put a, I don't know, a pin through your body and you don't feel the pain. And you're sitting there like a stooge and you go like... Does this mean you have reached God or a state of grace? So it's not obvious. Ramakrishna tried yoga and then he said, yes, with yoga... I have reached to that state of consciousness which allowed me to taste grace, to be in a state of divine presence. That's why uh, it is important for you to realize that in the history of this planet, while yoga is a very technical discipline, and it says there are eight stages of yoga, and you do this, and you do this, and you do that, and you rise to this, and you rise to that, and you rise even to that... It's not exactly understandable. What is this spiritual realization? What does it offer? Okay, yoga is Chitavriti niroda. Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind. Why is that desirable? Like I feel good when I am uh, dancing the... Paso doble or something, you know, I'm I'm feeling alive when I'm dancing the, you know, whatever, you know, something, when I'm dancing, when I'm eating, when I'm making love, when I'm laughing, when I'm like, what's so desirable about the standard classical definition of the fact that I'm slowing down and slowing down and slowing down. And then that's supposed to be some sort of God, why is it like and and what's the happiness included in that like is is there any merit in it? so we know that the different traditions while they spoke about evolution, what they spoke about the fact that a human being can become an improved human being, and that there is some uh, Evolution, there is some development, some progress of the human being. On the other hand, where does it exactly go? What, where, what is this evolution becoming? That's exactly the point of the whole thing. And therefore, no, you, would, you don't expect that, for example, in Buddhism, Buddha insists on. Love. Oh, but if you reach nirvana, you are bathed in love forever. Buddhist teachers from the Theravada, from the Hinayana tradition, if you go to a meditation camp and you say, in the day number 15, I felt a great love, they will just tell you, naming, 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 you know, like designated, designated. Name it, because love is just a vritti. It's just a movement of your mind. It's just an emotion in the end. You know, but Jesus would say, love is not just an emotion. Love is God. It's the nature of God. You know? So when you found love, you found God. And the other way around. No? And then another teacher from another tradition says, no, no, it's not that. It's not that you are... Mo-. So, do I want cosmic love? Or do I not want cosmic love? No? It's, this is the big question. Because different traditions will insist on something else. Because, of course, Jesus insisted on love. He was into the bhakti yoga thing, he came into an environment where people could just be devoted to God, they were practicing devotion to God, and his approach was the approach of a bhakti. And therefore he entered God via the heart and via love. But Buddha did not do that. I'm not saying that Buddha was not a loving person, far from that. I'm not saying that Buddha may not have had a beautiful Anahata, but it was not the main weapon which he used. In Buddhism, this spiritual victory, which I'm going to come back, you know, because it's uh, the, the picture is a bit more complicated. This spiritual victory is called enlightenment. And enlightenment is the Santran translation from Sanskrit, from Pali, from whatever, of a concept, Buddha, buddhi, which is related to the planet Mercury. The planet Mercury is called Buddha in Vedic astrology. And Buddha himself is called by a name which is practically similar. And Bodha and Bodhisattva and all this, they come from the same. And the planet Mercury is a planet of knowledge and information, is the planet of the internet and journalism and transfer, and is the planet of Tara, and is the planet of other things in that tradition. And therefore, according to Buddha, to reach Nirvana is to reach a supreme knowledge. But will you feel loved? Buddha doesn't even care about it. They say that Buddha spoke against the concept of God. It's not true. I defy you to find a paragraph in which Buddha explicitly says, there is no God, people have invented this concept, blah, blah, blah. It's not true. He never said that. What actually, what Buddha said was like this. He said, if the Lord Ishvara created this universe or not, will be totally irrelevant in the moment of your death. Because the fact you'll say, yeah, but you know, I've lived like a shithead, and I'm a baboon, I'm a total orangutan, but I know that Lord Ishvara created this universe. Lord Ishvara, God, the Father, whatever, have mercy on me. Yes, asking for mercy and praying does have an effect. But of course, if your prayer is coming in the last two minutes of your life, the effect of it is generally nil. Can God make a miracle? And yes, sure. So there is a 0.0000001% chance that even if you pray two minutes before you die, you can save the day. That's why I'm advising even the most bitter sinner to pray whenever, to ask for grace whenever, because grace is possible and impredictable. But generally, looking at what has happened in this world, looking at the billions and gazillions of people that have died in Asia, Africa, America, Europe, wherever, in any religion whatsoever, we know that the fact that somebody remembers in the last minute and out of the fear of death, says, oh, oops, I'm shitting my pants, let me pray, maybe, you know, like, it's a good idea. But the chance of it realistically giving an effect is a super, 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 super small probability. And therefore, Buddha never spoke against the existence of God. It's true that Buddha said, no atma. Because people had perverted the meaning of the word Atma, that they were believing that there is a butterfly which comes out of your soul when you die, and that carries with you your soul. And if you are a Scorpio in this lifetime, your soul is the soul of a Scorpio. Which is bullshit, because your soul has no astrological sign, and is not condemned. the fact that in the previous life you've been a Scorpio, born as a Scorpio, doesn't mean that in the next life you'll be born as a Scorpio. You know, and try to imagine the painful conflict between being a Taurus and being a Gemini. You know, the most stable sign of the zodiac, as compared with the most air-headed sign of the zodiac. You know, if you tell to a Taurus in the next life you'll be born as a Gemini, they will try to commit suicide already. They are although they are dead already. You know, it's like let me die when I'm dead already. You know, like just don't make me a Gemini. Because it's kind of the most, you know. So, of course, our soul has no astrological sign and things like this. So this story that there is a sort of an emotional thing which comes out of you and goes and waits 49 days in some. And then it comes and it's you again. This is bollocks. And Buddha stood against this because he said people think that they are going to fulfill their desires no, like, I, I'm a Taurus, and I did not manage to build myself a house, a big one. Maybe a palace would be even better, you know. I didn't, my Muladhara did not manage to build some thick walled residence, you know, some sort of Potala palace, you know, for myself in this life, and I died but I'm going to do it in the next... But but in the next life you'll be a Gemini and when somebody will tell you uh, why we want to build you a big house, you'll say, come on, man. It's like I'm choking under the weight of it. I just want to run on the hills and be naked like Laleshvari and sing songs and have no food and no house and be free as the sky and not have anything and not be attached to anything or something like that. That's why I'm telling you all these things to understand that uh, there is a big misunderstanding between religions, and that's why they describe things in such different way. Buddha, basically, he does not speak about the fact that you will find love, because Buddha has not worked on a way to take Anahata Chakra to the sub level number seven and make it the Anahata Chakra of God of going from Anahata Chakra to Maha Anahata Chakra and sink into God, go into the Hridaya, go into the... No, he didn't go into that, and he didn't practice that. And he had another way of doing Vipassana or whatever, doing Anapana and other things, and then he reached to a complete awareness, which manifested for him like a flame here. No, that's how Buddha is represented, with something happening here, right there. Now, so, Buddha, most often, there are many Buddha statues, they don't even have a sign on the forehead. Now, while many Asian things have a third eye, it's not even the third eye which matters. It's here. No, But then, in the case of Jesus, Jesus is teaching people to go through the heart. So the question is, am I teaching you a way to universal knowledge? Or am I teaching you a way to universal love? Because they feel like very, very different. Very, very different. And if you read the life of Buddha, what kind of person he was, he was not, he's never presented like, you know, Jesus is going and suddenly a mother has lost her son or Jairus has lost his daughter. And he says, can you help me? My daughter is dying, you know. And Buddha would say, but everybody is dying. You yourself have been dying 5,000 times already. Why do you bother? What a nonsense is this that now... And Jesus is saying, yeah, everybody is dying and you are really a fool. But I love you, a fool as you are. No, I have a lot of compassion for you being so foolish. And I understand you got attached to your daughter. So here is another 50 years together with your daughter. Boom. Little girl rise. No, Buddha never did that. Nobody says that he could or he could not. But he was not interested because he had a completely different attitude to life. And that's why please understand that sometimes some religions insist on love, going to perfect love, on happiness, going into bliss or perfect happiness, uh, listening to the will of God. Like what is the will of God for Buddha? Buddha never talks about the will of God. And I'm telling you, there is the belief generated by modern atheistic people. Many Europeans and North Americans proclaim themselves to be Buddhist, Dalai Lama Buddhist or something. And unfortunately they are as much Buddhist as my dogs are Buddhist. You know, it's like it's, Very little Buddhism is there, you know, these people are egoistic, attached, limited, primitive, lying, completely interested in money and other things. And they claim to be Buddhist when if you read just half of a page from what Milarepa wrote, like a real Buddhist, then you'd say, man, nobody is a Buddhist around here, you know, it's like, what what joke is this? that many people claim to be Buddhist. They are Buddhist without cultivating the Buddhist ideals. Now, then what kind of Buddhist are you, if you don't really go the full monte for that? So, then, you know, where is the will of God? And Buddha, these people don't like Jesus, and they don't like Christianity, and they don't like Judaism, and they don't like Islam, and they don't like Guru Nanak, and they don't like Ramakrishna, and they don't like Yogananda, because all these God-loving yogis and spiritualists, Rumi and others, they make them feel awkward. When somebody is falling on the knees and says, may God, and so on, uh, the non-religious people go like, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, you know, like they are embarrassed. The people who are blocked on Anahata, they are very embarrassed, you know, and again, it's their right to go through other paths and to do that. But the point is, Buddha, I'm not saying that he was embarrassed, but he said it very clearly. When you will die, the fact, the metaphysical fact that Lord Brahma or, the, or Ishvara or whoever you call him created this universe will be completely irrelevant. Because the only thing which will work when you will die, he considered death very important. Like when you die, that's you take a left or a right. You know, that's when it's decided what's happening. Death is super important because it's the moment where you draw the line and make the accounts for a lifetime. And then it's decided what comes for the next 300 years or 3000 years or sometimes more than that. No. And. Basically, he said the only thing which will matter then is your deeds, which means your karma. Like what you have done will fuck you or bless you. It's as simple as that. The fact that you say, but Lord Ishvara created, yeah, yeah, go to hell. No, Lord Ishvara created this universe and you can as well go to hell. It won't save a millimeter of your ass if you have done hellish things in your life. It won't change anything. So Buddha did not say God does not exist. He simply said, I don't see any usefulness in people who are all the time with God in their mouth, that God did that and God said that, you know, because in the end, those people do hellish things. As the Hinduism had been decadent at his time, it was a very decadent religion. And uh, then basically he simply said, rely on karma. Rely on a good physical action, good speaking, good thinking. These are the things which produce good karma on the different levels of your being. Not... uh, So, even Buddha... He did not deny, but he does not speak of a will of God. If you ask Buddha, what is the closest that comes to this Christian will of God? Because the Christians say that when you become like Francis of Assisi, or when you become like John of the Cross, or when you become like St. Basil the Great, you are not only in the love of God, not only in the happiness of God, but you are in the will of God. Like you are surrendering completely, and your soul has such a joy to do the will of God, the bidding of God, that you are like the perfect slave, servant. In India, in the Vaishnava part of the Hindu religion, many people are called because of that Dasa. Das or Dasa. The name Das means servant. When you say uh, Krishna das. When you say whatever other does, you are basically saying the servant of Krishna, the servant of Vishnu, the servant of this, which is a bhakti yoga that's very close to Christianity. No? And other bhakti things, Islam and even others, even in Kashmiri Shaivis, they appreciated it very much because they simply said at least it's a clear approach to God through this that you are fulfilling the will of God, that you are doing the things of God constantly. So, um, basically, uh, Buddhism insists on enlightenment, which is more like insisting on uh, knowledge. There are divine attributes, like there is a divine attribute of knowing all all-knowledge, omniscience. God is all-knowing, and Buddha would have liked to be all-knowing. It's clear that in the case of Buddha, there is a presence of this Vishuddha chakra, aspirate Mercurian spirit, frequencies of Mercury in astrology, and other things. I myself am a Mercurian person and can understand Buddha very well, and I have connections with the Buddhist tradition in previous lives as well, and I remember, you know, when I was discovering yoga, I was telling to my teacher, I was talking to my yoga teacher from those days, and I told him, the greatest thing for me is this knowledge. This knowledge, you know, this knowledge. I never thought about omnipotence. Like almightiness. I would like to go and kick the ass of everything, everywhere in the universe. I was not interested in doing things. I was in my psychology, was interested in knowing things. Like I want to sit there and see the universe, see the reality. Even in the Japanese Buddhism, they still preserved it as seeing. Under the form of observation, this enlightenment in Japan became the Satori, which is a unique vision, that you are sitting there, drinking a cup of tea, and you see, you see, you have the vision of everything. Now, we've seen this... uh, Judo saga movie of Kurosawa, where this guy spent I don't know how many hours or something in a pond of water, being tormented by his ego, by his fire, by his violence, by different things. And then, when he was at the acme of this conflict, suffering because he was not comfortable, but at the same time, you know, having to listen to the injunction of his guru, he suddenly looked at a flower and like something opened up in him. That's the very common... I'm not saying that necessarily in the Kurosawa movie or in the history of Japan, this fellow Sanshiro Sugata, real or imaginary character, was an enlightened being. He might have been, a few years later, Morihei Ueshiba, practicing similar doctrines of Japan, he claimed that he actually reached Samadhi, and that he reached Satori, that he had an actual state of enlightenment. So that enlightenment was like a flash, seeing. Again, Buddhist angle is like understanding, knowledge, enlightenment. Even today in English, the word is not used wrong, because in English, uh, people say, well, you don't understand anything about uh, the problems of uh, Uh, I don't know, broadcasting, yoga, online. And then the other person says, well, enlighten me. And enlighten me is like, talk to me about it and explain to me what's so problematic, what's so special. So the word enlighten in colloquial English, it means give me the information, inform me. So Buddha, when he describes, he says, suddenly I saw my 10,000 lifetimes. Never A Christian saint or Rumi or some other, some Jewish prophet, some Kabbalist or something, said, oh, all I wanted was to know my 10,000 previous lives. Like, I wanted to feel the embrace of God. I wanted to be one with God. I wanted to feel the love of God. Or, I wanted other things. Remember, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, which means... All-knowing, all-doing, all-powerful, and almighty, and all-present. These are the three main attributes of the divine. So when you want, it's like if somebody would tell you you want to be omniscient, you want to be omnipotent, or you want to be omnipresent. There are people who suffer, from, example, from the famous American syndrome called FOMO envy you know fear of missing out that person wants to be omnipresent it says why wasn't i present when you discussed about this or that Okay, pray to God until God makes you omnipresent. Then you will never have the impression that you missed something, that you haven't. You will be present at the creation of the universe, and you will be present at the dissolution of the universe. You will be present in heaven, and you will be present in hell. You will be present everywhere. Whenever Jesus was whispering a secret into the ear of John... You will be present, they're eavesdropping. Whenever Shiva taught something to Shakti, then you like Matsyendra in the stomach of, a, of that fish, you will be omnipresent. No, even Shiva cannot hide from you because you are omnipresent, you have become omnipresent. Some people want the omnipotence. There are other attributes. Please, that's why understand Hinduism, for example, insists on. Liberation. They, they speak about love because they have bhakti yoga. They know about enlightenment because Buddha grew up in that land and Buddhism appeared in that country. Now in Gaya, after all. No? But they speak about moksha, mukti, liberation. Liberate. No? And liberation means freedom. You are not free. You are forced to reincarnate. The karma is pushing you to have certain things. What do you have to do to become completely, completely, completely free? And when Mircea Eliade wrote a PhD on yoga, it was uh, yoga, immortality, and freedom. Like freedom, moksha for sure is there because the condition of spiritual realization in yoga is called liberation, mukti. And also he added immortality, because it was somehow that he discovered that Patanjali, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, whoever, they were addressing this frontally. Everybody is afraid of dying, especially if dying means you are going to disappear forever. If dying is a black hole in which you disappear, then you are afraid of that. And that's why yoga, the yogis, They promise in their texts a sort of immortality, the fact that you will never die, that you will remember of yourself, you will survive under a certain form, or if you want it expressed more scientifically, that you will reach a state of continuity of consciousness beyond death. And death is therefore not the interruption of the flow of your awareness, and consciousness. So, uh, but uh, the yogis also speak about bhakti and the will of God and some love. For example, in Karma Yoga, Krishna in Bhagavad Gita constantly teaches to Arjuna that the most important thing is to fulfill the Dharma. Even if then for Dharma, for Arjuna, it means fighting a war and killing a lot of people. And he says, you should not be like We saw in that Judo saga movie, I'm saying simply because I like to refer to recent things, you know, the guy said, I cannot beat that uh, master, no, because he has a pretty daughter and I'm kind of infatuated with her. And the monk who was guiding him spiritually, the, the aid of camp of his guru, clapped him over the head and he said, how can you be so selfish? When you came here to this school of Judo, You're not so like you are thinking selfishly. Because you like the girl, you would like to make a compromise with the father. But what about your guru? What about your sensei? Aren't you supposed to serve your sensei? So put your feelings aside and work for your sensei. Do the Dharma. Do the Karma Yoga, which you are supposed to do. Even if it means offending the girl that you like. No? Because... Eventually, the history showed that actually he did not offend the girl. He actually got close to her in the end, you know, even if in the beginning it seemed that he will, she will get annoyed, she will get angry at him because he beat her father in a competition. But she didn't because he behaved honorably, clean, harmoniously, and actually he grew. He grew in, in stature because he did the right thing. So there is there the will of God under a form in karma yoga, in the very concept of karma yoga. So to make the long story short, which is not really possible, but I want to come back from all this. I just wanted to start by telling you that we speak about spiritual realization and Ramakrishna says Samadhi is the way to the spiritual realization. But this spiritual realization has been presented in so many ways. Is it almightiness? It is omniscience? It is omnipresence? It is love, infinite and eternal? It is surrender and worship, like leaving at the feet of God, touching the feet of God, and just, you know. Like Bhatanarayana says, "You know, if you give me your grace, I shall sit by your feet forever and ever, and I would worship your feet and i that's all I want. I want to be in that flow of love, I want to love and love and love and love, and that's enough for me. Just keep me in that flow of love, and I'll be there forever. I don't need more than that, no so If you ask the great bhaktas of India India and of Kashmir, even in Kashmiri Shaivism, some of them say, I don't need any enlightenment. I don't need to know my previous lives. I don't need freedom. You know, you're going to say, but if you don't reach moksha, I will continue reincarnating. Yeah. So what? It's Shiva. It's Shiva and Shakti dancing. Let me continue reincarnating forever and ever. What do I care? You know, it's like I celebrate Shiva and Shakti every minute of, you know, even if I have like that guy who said, you'll have 6,000 incarnations. He said, okay, 6,000 more lifetimes to have fun and to love God. And, to, you know, it's like there's no tragedy with this. No. So there are, there are many Siddhas from Kashmiri Shaivis who said, I don't care about, uh, you know, enlightenment or knowing my previous lives or moksha. But I want to be in God. I want to be one with God. I want to have not love for God. I want to have love in God. I want to be into that flow completely. So everybody has expressed it in a different way. Try to think also that people are visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Listen, O Israel, the Lord thy God is speaking. What is that? That's an auditory formulation. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is speaking. Why doesn't he dance a jig? Why does he speak? Why doesn't he hold a board with words written on it? No, or something. Why is God speaking? And I'm saying, listen, because it's all coming through an auditory channel. The prophet who said that had a big vishuda, and he was in an auditory condo. He could hear God. But others could see and others could feel. It was an embrace with God. So kinesthetic people and visual people and auditory people, they will also present this spiritual victory in a different way. And some people will say, I'm going to see God. Like, you know, these images about the seraphim and the cherubim, the great angels, which are like thrones on which God is sitting. And they are singing all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You know, what a vision. But this vision has almost nothing kinesthetic in it. It's a visual vision. And maybe it has a little bit of a mantra. Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God, you know? But where is the kinesthetic factor? Oh, you can't even come close to the throne of God. Well, Abhinavagupta will say, I beg to differ. I can just jump in God like a missile, you know? Go, and now I'm in the heart of God. And, you know, and people say, how can you do that? You know, you are supposed to just bow down from a distance respectfully, you know? There are so many approaches to it. That's why... It's very important for you to understand, to be reminded, and I'm advising if you never did the metaphysical workshop of Agama, do it. Do it at all costs one day, because there is so much knowledge that you get there. You get such a picture, mostly from Yogananda, but also with contributions from all the other great yogis, to understand, now what I'm saying is only this. The human being can be more primitive, and then the human being is a bit of a baboon, a gorilla. Or the human being can be more superior, and then the human being is closer to something very refined, superhuman. Uh, Anthropologically, the people see this thing only, scientists see this thing only materialistically. And now they don't talk about it too much because it's very, very close to racism, and that's why they don't want to mention it, you know, that uh, the people of the future, when we describe the people of the future, there is a wonderful cartoon called Wally, about a little robot forgotten on a planet somewhere, on the planet Earth, which was destroyed ecologically and so on, and then there is an orbiting ship where the survivors of the humanity, a few thousand people, are there, And they have all grown fat, plump. They live without gravitation. They cannot stand up. They have no muscles. And uh, the anthropologists say uh, the food will become more and more synthetic and nourishing. So people will have less and less teeth, less and less jaw. The mouth is becoming smaller and smaller. The chin is becoming smaller and smaller, exactly as in the pictures of aliens, that aliens, this little gray man, they have a big bulging head, they have a big brain capacity, and then down their face is like this. Like there is very little here, because your life, when you were a man in the Stone Age, then you were catching a reindeer, and you didn't have time to cook her. So you just went and took the reindeer, and crunched tea. You're a little bit like a dog. You're a little bit like a wolf. A lot of your power was here, you know, and, uh, uh, but like this, your brain is getting bigger, your lower part is getting smaller, your arms are getting smaller because you just need to keyboard on your telephone, on your smartphone or on your computer... You know, you don't need to hunt elephants with your arms. Your legs are also less important. So the human being is cerebralizing, is becoming like a sort of a sperm cell with a big head and the rest of the body really small and underdeveloped. While these are speculations of the futurologists and anthropologists, no? it basically says, how do you represent a primitive person? A primitive person has a big jaw. Mm. So the head is like this, not like this. This is the head of an alien from the next generation, but the head of a primitive bastard is like this. The neck is as thick as the neck of a tow, of a bull, and the jaw is huge, and the brains are a little bit small. That's exactly how communist sculptures represented the heroes of the proletarian class. If you will go and see sculptures and art from the proletarian years in Russia, Romania, Eastern Europe, all the proletarian heroes are represented like gorillas. They have a big jaw, which means they are really aggressive. They would bite your head off if you... Oppose the working class, proletarians' ideals, you know, and so on. They were big here, and they didn't need to think too much because the Communist Party told them what to do, and they did, you know. And so they didn't think much; they didn't need to think much; they obey. But uh, unfortunately, that's the way many black people are. And that's a racism, you know, in the before time, there was the thing with the facial angle that if your uh, mouth is protruding forward, then you have a certain angle between your forehead, the upper incisive teeth and the orifice of the ear. The plan between this and this is called the facial angle. And guess what? The higher your IQ is, the bigger the facial angle is. Now, try to think about a dog. Where is the middle of the forehead of the dog? Where are the upper teeth of the dog? Here, here, and where is the ear? The angle, the facial angle is about this big for a dog. And for, a, for some human beings, it nears 90 degrees. No? So the more you have the face of a dog or of a chimpanzee, The more you are a primitive person, and the more you have the mouth withdrawn and small, the teeth inside, and the forehead bulging, and the ears low like the Buddha, the more you are an evolved human being. Yeah. I am not an expert in anthropology and facial angle. I'm just simply telling you that nobody dares to speak about this right now. Because it's equivalent to racism that you are judging people by their anthropological things and so on. But the point was that there are some qualities which bring us closer to the animals, and there are some characteristics which bring us closer to the aliens or to the people from the cartoon called Wally. You know? We are like the human being develops in a certain way. That's materialistic science. But even materialistic science acknowledges that we are going away from our animal nature. That we are going and that the brain becomes the main instrument. That we control the nature with the brain. The people that control this planet today Or the people that have built dams, water dams for electricity or other things, they didn't build them with this. They built caterpillars and the caterpillars did the work. They built the whole world with this. This is what runs the show. And therefore the brain is becoming more important. (coughs) And our animalistic part is becoming less important. So in spirituality, we have this clear idea that the human beings are sandwiched between the animal part and the higher part. I don't know if this thing with a facial angle or something like this has any relevance. Maybe actually the African people are closest to the gods and the white people with a big facial angle, they are the baboons. It's possible that it's the other way around. I'm not interested in the theory of the facial angle and all sorts of old-fashioned anthropological theories. I just mentioned it to show that there is a feeling of graduation, that not everybody is exactly the same and that there are some things which give us signals. And when the human beings reach higher, if a human being reaches as far as a human being can reach And then goes beyond. Is there something beyond? For the materialistic science, there is nothing beyond. Only if we would discover some aliens, and those aliens would be a million years more advanced than us technologically, and we would compare to them physically. But this is a very limitative way of thinking. And as you can see, even if there are some aliens around, they don't like to make themselves public too much. No, they don't interfere too much with our development and all that. I'm not going there because that's not where the point is. But if you read literature by Gellerup, for example, a Danish novelist, and others, you're going to see that that's exactly the idea expressed in Buddhism, Hinduism, and others. Exactly as there are subhuman stages of evolution and some of them we know, and some of them we don't know because they are not in the visible world. Like some demonic forces, some elementals, some spirits of nature, they may be in parallel with the dogs and with the cows and with the others, but we know that they are below the human condition. What's above the human condition? Nothing physical. On this planet, we do not have something physical which is more developed than the human being, but in the subtle worlds, oh, plenty. So people are related to being planetary geniuses, even the kings. For example, in Thailand, they say that the king, the previous king, was a sort of a bodhisattva, because to be a king and not to make mistakes of ego is a very huge temptation, and then you are becoming a bodhisattva, so basically it's a sort of a spiritual test to being tested with power and other things. So human beings becoming superhuman, becoming minor deities, becoming major deities, it's everywhere. When you read Tibetan yoga, you know that a woman was not a woman, but was actually a dakini. A dakini is a minor goddess. How does a minor goddess get incarnated in a body of a woman born in Tibet? Not only. The uh, Tibetans had seen the coins with the face of Queen Victoria. And although they hated the British, because the British invaded, shamelessly, Tibet in 1905, and they were really pissed off at the British, nevertheless, When they saw the face of Queen Victoria, those who could do Samyama, those who were advanced yogis, they said, this woman is a Dakini. So Queen Victoria, who was a Gemini, ruled by the planet Mercury, therefore Buddha, right? A Vishuddha something was there from Mercurian influence. She was considered by Tibetans who disliked the English and they didn't have any reason to butter their asses, you know, to butter their holes, like to praise them, to say, oh, your queen is a Dakini. No, they didn't have any reason. They didn't like them. But they nevertheless said, this woman is a Dakini. No? If you look at the behavior of Queen Victoria, you can say she was coerced by the rules of her time. But the Queen Victoria got married... She sired, I don't know how many children, eight children or five children or something. Like, basically, she fucked like rabbits. Apparently, she had a big Swadistana, which many Gemini women do have. And then Albert got squeezed like a sponge. You know, he had no drops of semen left in him, apparently. And he died. And the Queen Victoria was 37 or something. And then she lived until 85. 85. No sex, nothing. She never tried to have a boyfriend or, you know, it's like a, woman, a superior woman with a big Vishuddha who can consecrate herself to karma yoga or something. I'm not saying she was very spiritual, no. but I'm simply saying that there was something there, that that woman had a very peculiar karma to become that. So even becoming planetary geniuses, spirits, Kings and other superhuman, minor deities, deities, it is happening, but we just don't see it. The Tibetan gurus and other clairvoyant gurus have seen it. As about the fact that something bigger than that, like a deity, could become incarnated in a human body, that's extremely seldom. Try to think how many avatars, did this planet know in the last 5,000 years? What? Krishna? Jesus? Maybe Ramakrishna? Maybe Abhinavagupta? No, like we are talking five, four, five. We are not even getting close to ten avatars in 5,000 years. Not one in 500 years. No? So it's like, how often? In all the planet, in all the planet Earth, Therefore, how often do you think that a goddess or a god would incarnate in a male body or in a female body? And how do you think that person would behave? No? That, that person would be the weirdo of the weirdos and go and live alone on a mountain or something, you know? Because what can you, you know? It's like there is so much happening inside and there is so much Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, which maybe you don't have them now because you are a forgetful human being. That it's like what's boiling in your soul. There are people who are not interested in this. I'm interested to have more land than my neighbor. I'm pissed off at my neighbor and my neighbor has three cows and I need to have four cows. We live in an Amazon village. We are aboriginals from the Amazon. And all the thing which is, is who has more goats? You know? Baboons. Baboons. I'm sorry to say it. It has nothing to do with the race or with the anthropology. There may be super advanced people among those tribes and among those people. I'm just giving an example to show that sometimes the horizon of life Is like this, like some people live in a cup of tea. Their whole world has the size of a cup of tea. And when there are ripples on the surface of the tea, there's a storm. But it's a storm in a cup of tea. Those things don't matter at all in the big picture. And if a god would be born in a body and would live on the Mount Himalaya, in the Himalayas, you would be looking down and then and say, I don't know why they make a fuss about this. You know, like, so I'm telling you all these things just because I want you to understand that the human being can evolve, can transform in something more than human. Really, if you want inspiration, read Karl Gellerup, Kamanita the Pilgrim. I probably, we have it in the library of Agama. In several copies, it's a wonderful reading. Like it's a spiritual literature. You can read it very nicely. You no, know, if you if you want an entertainment book, to read Karl Gellerup. It's written G J E G J. That's how Danes pronounce Gellerup. And um, just to see. That there, Kamanita, is trying to become superhuman. And eventually, if I remember correctly, he becomes the master of a solar system. He becomes like the dominant deity of a solar system, exactly as Surya Deva is to us. Surya Deva is a human being from a previous time. But long, 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 long time ago. Because try to think that the sun... Is about 10, 20, 30, 40 billion years old. So when the sun started being, he was already the sun. So his evolution happened more than 10, 20, 30, 40 billion years ago. And that's, and you say, and ever since he just does that, yeah, it's damn boring, isn't it, to be the sun? No, on the other hand, you've got all the power in this solar system. Try to think even scientifically, we agree to that. If the sun farts in the direction of the planet Earth, we are dead in eight hours. (laughs) A solar flare, just all it takes. One solar flare in the direction of the Earth. Life on Earth goes to ground zero. It resets. Everything is burned down to ashes. So we are lucky the sun didn't fart in our direction because... The sun is almighty in this solar system. The sun can do whatever he wants. He created us. He created life on earth. The sun is the administrator. You can say God. Yeah, but between God and you, there is a very important person called Suryadeva. And Surya Deva can go to God and say, I decided to burn half of them. You know, they are getting really annoying and nobody is worshipping me anymore, you know. And God might say, you know what, I would suggest you don't do it. But if you do it, like, you know, they are going to bargain on it. And then the sun is going to say, you know what, I'm doing it anyway. Even if I get some bad karma from it. just <laughs> fart on them and just burn them a little bit. You know, it can happen. You don't realize the power which Surya Deva has over our lives. No, the fact that uh, some evil cult is proclaiming a pesky virus as it is the end of the world, you know, and, it's, and people say, how can these people have such a power to butt-fuck all of us, you know, they destroy the economy, they do everything. You know, who is in charge of this? Because it must be somebody who is deeper than uh, Bill Gates and this Bill Gates and this. They are just some Mickey Mouses compared to the real, to the ones who really pull the strings. Who is pulling the strings there, you know? This is dust compared to what Surya Deva can do. This is dust compared to what Kali or Tripura Sundari could do. You don't even have a scope close enough to how big, how small we are and how big some powers are in the universe. So, of course, if you want, like to be a king, then you definitely would like to be the Surya Deva in some new solar system somewhere. You know, it's like, then you'll see what power means for a long time and witness the cost. But, uh, okay, you are bound to that job for 60 billion years. You can't quit. Well, oops. You know, there is a power, but there is also a stagnation. That's why Patanjali, one of the founding fathers of yoga... He recommends you shouldn't do that. He says you should not try to become a deity or a god because then your evolution will happen slowly in tens of billions of years. You will be in paradise. You will have power and a lot of things. You will not be infinite like God. But you will be in a very privileged place. You will be the king of kings. And uh, your evolution will go very slow. Like, when will I become a Buddha? Yogananda says you can become a Buddha in a million years. No, but not for the sun. Surya Deva cannot become a Buddha in a million years. No? Suddenly, there's a story in India with Indra Deva. Who is corresponding to Jupiter actually, but Indra is the king of the gods because the sun is separate, the king of the planetary deities. And he becomes arrogant. And the guru of the gods, he knows he cannot uh, do it himself, and he asks for Vishnu and Shiva. He goes to Vishnu and he says, Indra is gone crazy. Do something. Now help me. And Vishnu says, No problemo. Just wait. You know? And then Vishnu goes to Shiva. And he says, uh, we have a problem on this planet, in this corner of the universe, in this little patch. The Indra, because there are other Indras on other planets, you know, in other solar systems. This Indra is nothing. He thinks he's important, but he's nothing compared to the size of the galaxy. And he says, this Indra from here, who is in our care, he's going a bit egocentric. And then Vishnu comes by and Shiva comes by, you no, know, and they do that funny thing where one of them sees ants and starts laughing. And Indra says, what's the story? And he's like a baby. He's like a Brahmin child. And he says, don't make me tell you because you will not be happy. And he insists. He says, but I'm the king. Do me this favor. Tell me, you know, you come and laugh. You know, you shouldn't have laughed. Now you made me curious. And so on. I'm getting so bored in my palace. At least now I have some entertainment with you. And then the child, who is uh, Vishnu himself, says, okay, here is the entertainment for you. Each one of these ants was an Indra billions and billions of years ago. You know, and it's like, so Indra is like, I'm like the ants, you know. It's like, I'm as expendable as the ants are, right? And then uh, ascetic comes, and he the hair on his uh, chest is half bald. He has a patch which he, the hair has fallen. So he has hair on his chest, and he's naked, like the ascetics of India, but there is a part which is bald. And he says, what's the meaning? And he says, you don't want to know. That's Shiva. You know? And he says, but humor me. I really want to know, you know. And then the second blow is coming. He said, every time when an Indra dies and goes wherever he goes, one hair is falling off my chest. you know." And he says, about half of them have fallen by now. You know." And then Indra, realizing, because he's not stupid, he's a god, no? Indra realizing, he says, oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm building palaces and drowning in my ego. Even I, Indra, look what I have come to be, and so on. And he says, I'm going in the forest to do yoga. And then Brihaspati and Vishnu and Shiva say, no, 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 no. You are not allowed. You have a job. You have signed a contract to be Indra for the next whatever billion of years or something like this. So you can't. Uh, At least what you can do is practice some meditation while you do your job. Like do some karma yoga. Do some yoga at your workplace. But you cannot abandon your workplace. Because Indra got so crazy with aspiration, you know, like realizing what the heck am I doing? That he wanted to go and become an ascetic. No? And Shiva told him, well, sorry, it's not in your contract description. You know, it's like your contract description says you are Indra, you stay Indra. But at least don't be an egoistic Indra. Don't be a forgetful Indra. Be a Indra who in the morning wakes up and does 30 minutes of meditation and remembers who he is and why he is doing the whole thing. Like find a compromise between the two. So, um, yes, Human beings can can become small deities, demigods, big deities, and something beyond that, which the Buddhists have termed under the simple names of Bodhisattva, which means a 90% Buddha, someone who in one, two, three lifetimes will be a full-on Buddha, and, of course, Buddhas themselves. And these are The enlightened beings, and these enlightened beings are described by some people as having access to the knowledge of God. They are described by some people as having access to the power of God. They are described by some people as having access to the presence of God. Like you are everywhere and you never miss anything because you can be there wherever you want, whenever you want. These people have access to the love Of God. These people have access to the happiness of the gods. Because remember, the gods live in bliss. And they live forever and they drink Soma. They drink, they still have the secret of the Soma in heaven as celestial energy. And they live forever in bliss with Soma. And they can go on like this for millions or even billions of years. Try to think. How old is the planet Jupiter? Ever since Jupiter exists in our solar system, maybe as old as the Earth. They say that the Earth could be 5 to 10 billion years. Um, Then, ever since that time, Jupiter exists. The planet itself exists and it exerts its astrological influence on the face of this Earth. So, even a god like Jupiter has a lifespan which is huge for um, uh, the understanding, for the standards of the human beings. So, now that we said that, Patanjali says, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop, go to the end of it, because any stop just prolongs the agony you can become the next Surya Deva, you can become the next Jupiter, then it will take a long time. It will take a long time. It is said that in the world of the planets, Indian astrology, for those of you who studied progress directions with me in the astrology workshop, one day is equivalent with one year in the world of God. So one day in the world of God is like a year on the planet Earth. A billion years is still a billion days. It means a lot. Like the lifespan of the gods is not the same because time is passing differently for them, but still there is the equivalence of one day of the gods is equal with one year of the humans. So their life is not as many billion years subjectively for them, but still one billion days. If you'll divide it by 365 it still means uh, all more than a million years yeah, in terms of subjective life. So their lives are very long. And that's why now we basically get to the point. How do you get there? I'll give you an example since I was young. In a group of yoga where a friend of mine, my lover was going in that group of yoga, studying with a teacher there. We actually were studying with the same teacher at that time. There was a girl who was a Pisces. Is Probably she's still alive. Uh, had a good Ajna, but mostly Yin, a receptive Ajna chakra. Uh, by the way, of all this spoiling the a perfectly good satsang, After the dog spoiled half of it already, I'm telling you that my forehead is wet with sweat. So I'm sorry for those of you who are having a great time, but I'm going to ruin that great time. Give me a couple of degrees lower because I'm sweating. Okay, back to our story. And this girl, every time when she went in meditation in the last six months of these events... She was going into a sort of state of void. Like she was meditating, meditating, and then suddenly she was like blacking out. Not falling asleep, not anything. Heading a state which is called jada, a sort of inferior samadhi called jada. And uh, the teacher told her, you have to somehow force yourself to go into it and go beyond it. There is something beyond that. It's like you are supposed to cross a swamp. And you are getting stuck in the middle of that swamp. And you are like... Uh. So you have to kind of... pull harder. And how, she said? Well, he explained, you know, with the mantras, with the prana, from pranayama, with whatever. This is a typical thing which is known well in the world of yoga. No? And she couldn't. And she wouldn't. And she said, yeah, but when I do this, it's really blissful. Then when we finish the meditation... I'm like, whoa, how was your meditation? Oh, my God. And it's like, I can't tell you, you know. Like, I I don't know exactly what happened, but the feeling, the aftermath of it, whoa, it's delicious. And then she kept on doing, and she was not making enough efforts. And the teacher could see that she was not making enough efforts. And then he told her, because he could see he had a, he, he was a Pisces, with a good Ajna also himself, but he was more solar than her. You know? And you told her, if you continue meditating like this, when you die, you'll become a goddess. Like, I'm not taking you to nirvana. I'm taking you to some godly form of existence. Because you are developing a part of Ajna chakra, which will give you a level of consciousness similar to some of the goddesses. And that's what you will become from this. Like, don't tell me I didn't tell you, you know, because I, as a teacher, when I see something not going in the right direction, I have the duty to tell you. So I'm telling you all these things to understand that um, there are different levels of meditation. And, for example, the Jada Samadhi, which is considered the lowest samadhi, also gives some evolution. And you can be born as a deity or something like that. So all the high states of... Let's say you develop a splendid Vishuddha chakra. Let's suppose you are a great vocal singer like Maria Callas or something. Or let's suppose you are a super, super musician a la Mozart or something like this. No, a real genius musician. Well, obviously you have so much Vishuddha that after when you die, you could become a Gandharva, you could become even a Dakini of a peculiar type. like You can become a deity of Vishuddha Chakra. And many of these people, you study them, they become reclusive, they become, you know, even Greta Garbo was having some Vishuddha Chakra and when she was 40, she quit acting and they discovered her when she was 65, she was hiding in Manhattan. She was a bit wealthy because she had been doing actorship and she had some money. Not as much money as today's actors have, but she still had some good money. She bought herself an apartment, she had a servant, and she was living with paintings, classical music, and almost never going out of her house. This is the typical definition of a Vishuda hermit. Even some religious hermits from Tibet or India, they had this kind of vishuda, and they didn't like to mingle with the world. They liked to be alone. They liked to, you know, and then such a person can easily become a sort of a vishuda deity. Just to give you an example of <coughs> musical deity or some others. And higher, then we are having the forms which Patanjali have called Savikalpa Samadhi. The Savikalpa Samadhi, which is Samadhi without with an object, based on an object, it means that your bliss is developing from something like uh, you meditate on knowledge, you meditate on love, you meditate on uh, omnipresence, you meditate on the divine attributes usually, and from that you reach to an ecstatic expansion of that. Like, whoa. And it's big time. It's divine. This kind of um, frequency generates what in Christianity is called paradise. That one lives or has the frequency (coughs) of paradise. And when you die, you go to paradise. This is, for example, very much which results from Christian prayer and from most of the Bhakti Yoga prayer. If Ramakrishna wouldn't have reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he would have belonged to a paradise. Bhakti Yoga often takes people to states of paradise where you go in universes which belong to the deity. The god of Anahata Chakra is called Ishvara. And you go to the sphere of Ishvara And Ishvara loves you. And you love Ishvara. And there is a lot of grace which comes to you from Ishvara. And after you spend 500,000 years with Ishvara, you might rise to an even higher state of consciousness. Because eventually everything goes to Sahasrara. Everything is sucked into the ultimate perfect consciousness. But it it may take time. So... Um, Salokia is called in Kashmiri Shaivism, that you go in the same loka as your god is, and there you spend the time in that paradise with that god. You share the same loka, and this is paradise. That's why um, Savikalpa Samadhi, which results very much from bhakti and other emotional things and meditating with object. Usually it results in states of happiness and love. It's very ecstatic. And this is resulting in, at the moment of death, being absorbed into some paradise by the power of karma and resonance. Exactly as it is described in the Chonid Bardo. In the second bardo, that you go for 14 days and there are lights and colors and you choose the place where you go according to your resonance. Of course, in this case, it will be higher. If you want to understand exactly how these paradises are, I will suggest that you listen to the first five minutes. You will know exactly when it changes. You don't need me to tell you. It's actually a bit more than five minutes. It's almost six. You listen to the first five minutes from the Pastoral Symphony of Ludwig van Beethoven, the symphony number no. six. It's called the Pastoral. Yeah, if you find it on internet, in, uh, on YouTube, in a hundred interpretations. In the Pastoral Symphony, Ludwig van Beethoven caught, for five, six minutes, he caught the frequency of one of these paradises. Listen carefully to it. If you like it, you will go there, And you might go there. If you find it boring and tasteless, it most probably means that you are a baboon full of desires and you are not worthy. For you, paradise is something tasteless and boring. Remember that in that frequency of those five, six minutes, there is a joy, a love, a happiness, a lightness, a freedom which is amazing. There are no problems. There are no baboons coming and knocking at your door and giving you problems and headaches. But I love some headaches. What is life without some salt and pepper? Well, apparently the saints don't eat salt and pepper. They like it bland. They go on rice without salt and without pepper, you know, or forever. Sattvic food, no? Not Rajasic spices, not Tamasic spices. I'm just saying it for you to understand clearly that these paradises are a matter of resonance and they are a matter of chakra. There are paradises on Svadhisthana where 72 virgins give you sex non-stop. There are paradises on Manipura where there are color, visual like uh, kimonos from Japan and uh, tankas from Tibet, you know, uh, painting, shape, form, and everything, you know, even geometry, golden numbers, pyramids, the harmony of the universe in geometry proportions, and rupa, the form of things. There are paradises on Muladhara, where everything is just a perfect stability. No, it's the bliss of the elephants. There are paradises on Anahata, which are the Christian paradises, there you experience love. And you say like Bata Narayana or Utpaladeva, I just wish to worship every blade of grass. Give me your grace and I shall sit by your feet forever, loving and loving and loving. And because all I want is to be in this flow of love, There are paradises on Vishuddha, where things are very cold, very princely-like, very aristocratic, very precious, where you would study astronomy, numbers, philosophy, the world of uh, Blaise Pascal, for those of you who know what Blaise Pascal did and saw the movie, and the world of Plato and Socrates. Socrates was a bit a bit more on Manipura, the world of Confucius, the world of Lao Tzu, the world of great abstract philosophers where everything is a matter of philosophy and it's the world of Immanuel Kant and others like them. Even modern philosophers sometimes were very Vishuda, detached type of persons. And there are paradises of Ajna, which are extremely big, which are extremely powerful. That's already where the inhabitants of those paradises are the result of Raja Yoga. They are the result of control of the mind, and they have many powers of the mind. That's In in paradises on Ajna Chakra, you find people like Milarepa, and generally Shambhala is preferring to stay in such places. And then, of course, you know that people can go further than these paradises. And that's when we come to nirvikalpa samadhi. Nirvikalpa samadhi is the break point. Even ajna and sahasrara are not good enough as paradises, like astral and mental levels. I want to go to something deeper. And that something deeper is beyond the world of gods. Remember, Ramakrishna had become one with Kali. Ramakrishna had the capacity to see Kali physically near him and to put sweets in her mouth to play with her like lovers play in India. No? He was in love with Kali and Kali was in love with him. He was giving himself to Kali and Kali was giving herself to him. You can't imagine because Kali is way bigger than Surya Deva. If Surya Deva is so big, you can't imagine where Kali is when Kali means the universal time. The time which exists in all the galaxies and meta-galaxies of this universe. It's something way bigger than our solar system and the scope of it. And Ramakrishna was hugging Kali. No? So Ramakrishna could get to any of this, but it was still Savikalpa. And when he came to Nirvikalpa, he had to, metaphorically speaking, kill Kali. He had to split her, like to go beyond, that there is something which is no name, no form, no nothing. Even the paradise is a form of Maya, which you may enjoy very much, but it's still a form of Maya. It's a beautiful dream. It's a divine dream. It's a formidable dream, but still it's a dream. And therefore, this is Nirvikalpa. And nirvikalpa is the frightening place, which is the breakpoint, because this is where you separate mortality from immortality. Until the level of savikalpa, people would live 60 billion years with the sun god in a paradise, and then the story is not over yet. But with nirvikalpa... The story is over. Because nirvikalpa means a meditation on the void. And in the void, the mind stops. The heart stops. the Everything stops. And the human being is reaching the void. Which means you are ready to give up the universe. You are ready to give up your life. Even your invisible life. Life in a paradise. Life for 60 billion years, everything is like you are jumping in a black hole. And you don't know if you'll ever return from that black hole or what that is. It's complete annihilation. It's like take a big sign of the cross or whatever you do and jump. And it's over. And it's over. And then exactly like Jesus, who had the courage to let himself die without doing anything... And then God stepped in in 30 few hours, in 36 hours, God stepped in and said, basta, enough is enough. And Jesus came back, you know, because God simply said, the joke has lasted long enough. Boom. It's exactly the same. If you go into this void, this void will bring you back, although there is no promise. There's a promise which we can give because we know it is that way. But one has to embrace this void. One has to give oneself to this void. As long as you believe only in Prakriti, you are still a materialist. You just want a better apartment, a better bungalow. You just want a better paradise than this paradise. But you are still somewhere in samsara. Nirvana Means that you let go of everything. It's a sort of a kamikaze. It's a sort of a harakiri. Today, it's over. And when you surrender in this way, Shiva, who is the universal consciousness, brings you back through the other side. You know, it's like you enter and you come out reborn, exactly as Jesus resurrected. That's the symbol of the resurrection, that you have to surrender completely to whatever seems to be total annihilation, but only with God. Only for God. This does not condone suicide or anything like this. Because those are stupid and they are caused by depression and by lack of meaning in one's life. This is the supreme meaning of going to Nirvikalpa. So in Nirvikalpa, everything stops. It feels like you lost everything. It feels like, you know, sometimes it takes you so quickly. It's exactly like with bungee jumping. Some people, when they do bungee jumping, they say, what the heck? And they jump. And those are the mad ones. And some people sit. And everybody who did bungee jumping knows that if you think more than 30 seconds, you will not jump. You know, because the more you think, the more the fear is coming to you. you. know, The whole trick is, close your eyes and jump. The same is with nirvikalpa samadhi. When it happens, jump. Don't think twice. The more you think, the more you'll be afraid of it. You know, it's like the total termination of everything. And you have to have that in you. Like Buddha. He was sick and tired of eating one grain of rice, you know. That annihilation was better than anything. You know, it's like, okay, fuck it all. You know, I didn't make it as a prince. I abandoned my wife. I dropped my kid. Now I've been eating a grain of rice every day for six years. What the fuck can happen to make it even worse? No? It's like, I'm a loser. I lost everything. The hell with it. But that's because the soul of Buddha was a very old soul And intuitively, he knew. Intuitively, he knew. That's why Jesus says a very weird word in his gospel. He says, Those who will lose their lives for me, they will win it all. And those who will try to save their pesky lives, they will lose everything. No? Because he means, you know, you try, you give it to God, and then you say, I'm a loser, I haven't done anything, I'm nothing. But I will give everything to God, nevertheless. That's how you lose your life for God. It's like uh, the ultimate depression of Eckhart Tolle, you know. It's like, I fucked it up completely and that's it. And then you are reborn because you are capable of, even in the ultimate distress, to give up everything and to say, okay, at least I will die with honor, you know. Oh, I lost even my honor. Okay, I will die with dishonor. And I was like, it doesn't matter. I'll just go. I, the only thing which I know to do is I know how to give myself to God. That's what I can do. It seems it was not a good choice. It seems I fucked my life. That's why very few spiritual practitioners go to the end of this path. Because the end of this path it's like you have, to com- you have to confront the ultimate annihilation. And then when that is done, Nirvikalpa Samadhi becomes a threshold from which one does not fall back. Ramakrishna says it very clearly, because he experienced it. He says, with, you can have a level of consciousness of Ajna Chakra or something, and if you have reached Nirvikalpa, you will not fall back. He says, with forms of Savikalpa Samadhi, Many people, you find them 20, 30 years later, if they don't continue, that they can be in Muladhara, Zvadistana, Manipura, that you can relapse. You never relapse or fall back from Nirvikalpa. That's why Nirvikalpa is like the safety level. That's why all the yoga traditions that are serious in India and Tibet, they want to take you to Nirvikalpa. Beyond the nirvikalpa, there is more. There is the liberation from the causal world, which doesn't have a name to my knowledge. And then there is the big one, the last one, which Ramakrishna has called Bhava Samadhi, which is a delusive name. I'll tell you in a second why. I don't have too many minutes left of this, uh, because I could speak the whole night about these things, but then it won't be a two-hour satsang. It would be a five-hour satsang. And then, um, Bhava Samadhi, or some other yogis from other schools in yoga and tantra, they called it Sahaja Samadhi. And it has also been called Unmilana Samadhi, which is a very, very technical name in Kashmiri Shaivism, because it mean, Unmilana means eyes open. Open your eyes. So it's Samadhi with the eyes open. Open. I said that bhava samadhi is a delusive name because Ramakrishna had forms of samadhi similar to it before because he was a bhakti yogi and he had samadhi worshipping Kali. Oh Kali, Om, Kali, Namaha, I love you so much. And he was in bliss. And that's also a sort of a bhava samadhi. But that's a bhava samadhi which is below Nirvikalpa. And then now he had Nirvikalpa and then he brought back the bhava. But this time the bhava was above the nirvikalpa samadhi. So the name bhava samadhi is used especially by Ramakrishna and it's a bit slippery. Of course we understand I love Ramakrishna very much uh, and because of this uh, I find I use it often. But technically sahaja samadhi and unmilana samadhi, the last name being used in Kashmiri Shaivis. In Kashmiri Shaivis they don't use sahaja, they don't use bhava, they use unmilana that is The final state of consciousness. And that is the state of consciousness of Shiva. I can tell you to conclude this. The last shlokas of Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Describes Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And he says. Such a one does not hear. It's the shloka 105 from chapter 4. It's the final chapter of Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Such a one, such one who has entered in Nirvikalpa, does not hear the noise of the conch and dundubhi, some instruments, some inner sounds as well. Like even in laya yoga, you go beyond the nada. Being in the unmani avastha, unmani mana means mind, unmani means above the mind. So being in the state beyond the mind, his body becomes like a piece of wood. Like your body is stiff, if somebody is touching you, you don't feel it, and the heart generally stops, and the EEG, after five minutes or so, goes flat. So there is no EKG, there is no EEG. It has been verified in India with some yogis who did have that. Medically verified in Lonavla by Kuvalayananda in the yoga hospital from Lonavla. There is no doubt such a yogi becomes free from all states, from all cares, and remains like one dead. You can say, do I want to be that? I hope I explain to you what nirvikalpa is. These are just the external manifestations. They can sound very dry, but here it is about going to the void from where everything springs, to that purusha. He is not devoured by death, is not bound by his actions. So no karma, and if one stays in samadhi like this for a long time, they can find their body even after 50 years. I told in some courses about that yogi that Abedananda found in a forest in his village, and he had a bamboo tree grown between his calf and ankle, between his calf and thigh, and they deduce that he must have been there for years, 10, 20 years. So he stays there like the yogi who is engaged in samadhi is overpowered by none. You can say, but is he fighting? Or That yogi was not uh, attacked, destroyed, abused or anything, because this is bringing a force which is in the causal body and which simply prevents it from happening. It's like it's impossible. Nobody even thinks about trying. It's like beyond the karma, and it's, a sort, it's becoming a sort of an impossibility, exactly as somebody is in a karmic and causal cocoon, like out of this world, like physically there, but nobody people will pass through the forest and not interact in any way. That one who was found, he was found because he needed to go to the next level. That's a long story. The yogi engaged in samadhi feels neither smell, taste, color, touch, sound, nor is conscious of his own lower self. Like you don't know that you are a Virgo or a Scorpio or something. There's nothing. You're out. It's like clinical death. It's like a coma. Nothing. Out But again, that state is the turning point of something so much bigger, as I explained already. He whose mind is neither sleeping, walk waking, remembering, destitute of memory, disappearing nor appearing, is liberated. So this condition, he says, it's not even remembering or forgetting, destitute of memory. It's not about forgetting or remembering. It's something else. It's not about disappearing or appearing or anything. It's beyond that. It's the shunya shunyasvara, as the Shaiva tradition calls it. It's the zero. It's not yin nor yang. It's out of the cycles of nature. It's out of the becoming of samsara. He feels neither heat, cold, pain, pleasure, respect, nor disrespect. Such a yogi is absorbed in samadhi. He who, though awake, appears like one sleeping and is without inspiration and expiration, here he says it clearly, the breath stops, is certainly free. The yogi engaged in samadhi cannot be killed by any instrument. Remember, there is a causal protection, there is a causal blockage. It's not that there is a physical shield or something and is beyond the controlling power of all the beings like he cannot be controlled not even by gods and goddesses and anything he is beyond the reach of incantations and charms like there are no yantras no mantras no nothing can go there because he is on the peak of the mountain in the void as long as prana does not enter and flow in the middle channel and the bindu does not become firm by the control of the movements of the prana, the bindu being the sperm in the case of man, as long as the mind does not assume the form of the brahma without any effort in contemplation, like samyama with God, which is the path of Patanjali, so long all the talk of knowledge and wisdom is merely the nonsensical babbling of a madman. like If you haven't been there... He says, you can talk about wisdom as much as you want. You don't know about anything. And to conclude, a wonderful text called the Maharta Manjari, one of the Kashmirian Shaivistic texts, very rare. It's a tradition which goes to Kashmir and to Nepal as well. I have an excerpt of this text. I used to have it somewhere, but I in English... Translated, but I have it in French, so I'm just browsing through it and telling you a few sentences directly translating from French. Uh, great Kashmir Shaivis, Sanskritologist of France called Lillian Silburn, she did translate this text in French, and I have the PDF of it in French. I know that a professor from India claims to have translated it in English, I don't know if the translation is good because that's always a problem. Some, some translations are miserable, lousy, and um, um, I don't have it. I was trying to get it today in PDF or something. Everybody wants to sell it for some money, so I did not get it right now. <clears throat> For Maheshwarananda, the Isida, the perfected yogi, is the one who has recognized the self and does not mix it anymore, neither with the body, with the intellect, with the breath, with the energy, or even with the states of void. That Jada, Samadhi, is a state of Samadhi in which one identifies with the void. But when you pass over Nirvikalpa, the void is only an instrument because there is awareness with that. So he comes back to the world, but however, writes Abhinavagupta, exactly as the person who has understood the secret of a magic trick of a David Copperfield thing or whatever. And then he is not duped anymore. He is not cheated anymore. Even though he sees the magic, he knows how it's done. He knows what the secret is there. Exactly in the same way also, when he sees samsara at work, the one who has recognized the supreme self is no longer the play of the illusion. And... At the bodily death, he will reach the state of being one with the Lord. How can the yogi enjoy this divine state during his life, destroying the last vestiges of duality? Abhinavagupta tells us, entirely devoted to diving, to sinking into Shiva, grace to... Uh, Asidual practice, he identifies his body and the external world with Shiva. He acquires the divine attributes even in this life and even without quitting his body. That's the major difference between Mrityu Moksha, the one who becomes totally free when dying, and some of the Jivan Muktas who have reached this divine status while in their lives. And that is coming close to the Bhava Samadhi or the Unmilana Samadhi, to the condition of Jesus. Because Abhinavagupta says, live it out, live it out, experience it as the divine. After having acceded to the universal will, which is Icha Shakti, through the impetus of his heart, the true Siddha, identified with the energy, not only with Shiva, but with the Shakti, uh, is relying on nothing anymore, has no more fulcrum in this universe. He has no cure for anything, no problem with anything. And because he does not depend on anything, he enjoys the infinite freedom. Thus, beyond liberation and enlightenment, most all the possibilities are open to that siddha. Adventure, conquest, exercise of divine powers, where the self shows itself in the most varied manifestations. At his own whim, such a man could make emerge the universe... Or maintain it for a duration like Vishnu, Brahma, Vishnu, create the universe, maintain it, or resorb the universe in himself. He would be creating the illusion as by a play, veiling his true nature, or he was he would withdraw, he will spread his grace, identifying the world with himself. That, that's how grace is coming from that standpoint, because if you are I then you enjoy that level of grace. So it's the fifth-fold activity of Shiva. Utpaladeva writes the following. He became, becomes a Siddha, that one who recognizes himself as the creator of the universe when he is absorbed without interruption in Shiva with whom he identifies. And Abhinavagupta Gupta. Explained, saying the Siddha takes consciousness of his omnipotence, which consists in creating the universe by his faith, by his belief, and such a belief identifies him with Shiva. Being a liberated being and nevertheless having dwelled in his own, uh, in, in the self and in the body at the same time, and having combined with the self, the body, the breath, the intellect, and even the void, even the voidness, because that is some part, as I told you, of nirvikalpa, the void is a component of the universe. Then he con- he obtains all the capacities and all the powers all the way to the supreme. Therefore, through the exercise of these, the Yogi convinces himself of his identity with Shiva. And the Siddha discovers that the limitating conditions, the body and others, because the body is a limitation, willy nilly, they don't differ from the self, from the self of Shiva. All the subject, all the conscious subjects form a, just a single subject, the one subject. Shiva alone exists knowing himself through the multiplicity of the things of this reality. That's what Somananda declares. And um, then they describe there are five types of Siddha according to the five divine Tattvas, the Jnana, siddhas, the loving siddhas, the krama siddhas, the melapa siddhas, the shakta siddhas, and the shambhava siddhas, according to the last five tattvas, for those of you who remember the last five tattvas of Kashmiri Shaivis. Here, we are dealing with texts from Kashmiri Shaivis, also in the Shiva Sutra, uh, Vasu Gupta is trying to describe the condition of being one with the self, being one with Bhairava. And um, these descriptions are beyond Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Like Hatha Yoga Pradipika describes Nirvikalpa, And texts like Shiva Sutra and Maharta Manjari, among others, there are others as well, they describe the supreme identification, which is the Unmilana Samadhi. And basically, they describe a divine state of existence. So, in this way, the human being can evolve a little. The human being can become a better human being. The human being can become a superhuman, which is like a minor deity. The human being can become a deity. The human being can become a major deity. The human being can become this close to the total Realization, Bodhisattva, the human being can become a Buddha with Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and then one has reached the break point, then there is no way back, then there is no relapse, then one has conquered the access to Purusha, which is the last thing, the access to the void, and then one is going beyond that by including the world of Shakti, by re-including the world, the world of Prakriti, and one is becoming a Siddha of the higher orders. The Jnana Siddha corresponding to the Vidya, it's the knowledgeable thing, the Siddha corresponding to Ishvara Tattva, Sadashiva Tattva, Shiva and Shakti. And in this way, uh, one can reach all the way to the level of Shiva identification to God. I hope uh, this esoteric lecture, in which I started a bit slow, that's why I kept it later, uh, I was unusually disturbed by all the ruckus which was happening outside with the dogs and all that. Proof that I was uh, emotionally attached in some ways to whatever what's happening there. Um, Then, slowly, slowly, we went into the explanations. And please remember, different gurus have presented it in different ways. It depends very much on what chakra you use, like Manipura with Sahasrara gives something else than Anahata with Sahasrara, which gives something else than Vishuddha with Sahasrara. So there are different typologies, different ways of being. In yoga... We want all of it. In yoga, we want to let you free, unfold your path. There may be some dharma which is pushing you in a certain direction automatically. And thus, we know for sure that your evolution will continue. And we know that as long as you are making practice and effort, your evolution is accelerated. Should any one of you in this life fall off the path, and for a large number of years, not do any practice whatsoever, and forget, and die in ignorance. And even then, your evolution cannot be stopped, and it will continue in another lifetime, in another time, evolution being the very law of this existence and of this universe. With yoga, we have a path a viable path which is parallel to the major paths and if you will do or did the metaphysical workshop, you know that the whole difference is that yoga is an esoteric path while if, for example, you are practicing Buddhism in general, that is an exoteric path and that means the approaches are slightly different on those. I think it's enough for tonight. We have had a lot of big concepts there and uh, Think on it, that subject for questions for the Q&A sessions on Tuesdays. And if that will provoke you for other major subjects for the future satsangs, remember I don't have a fixed subject for the satsangs in the coming weeks. And I am very flexible to satisfy the needs of those of you who want to hear me lecturing on a major subject at a time. With us, finish, I'm sorry I kept you a bit longer than usual. And uh, see you in the coming activities.